and saved him out of all his troubles. Lord, we come to you with praise and exalting you as the one true God today who who delivers the poor, those who lack resources in so many ways, even beyond money. You save us, Lord, when we have no spiritual resources. You redeem us. You save us, Lord, out of our trouble. You are the delivering God. And we come to you as the delivering God because we know that we are poor. We are poor in spirit and we need your grace to uh, work in our lives in a way that satisfies our longings. And today we come to you with our longings in prayer. First with a longing of praise as Psalm 34 began. Praise for the ways you provided for this church uh, through resources given even this morning, this past year. Uh, the generosity of your people that uh, has affected the, the building of your church in so many ways and, and the mission of your church. Continue to stir within us a heart of generosity, O Lord. And Lord, we pray for the new years as you bring all kinds of exciting opportunities for the church, for our families, for our community, and unique challenges, even changes. We pray you give us grace as a people to know you in the midst of the joys, the challenges, the changes. We pray that you would remind us, Lord, that you don't change, that you're always Lord. We pray on this new year, Lord, for the next person to come to Christ. We want to see more people come to know you, Lord, because you are the true one who can satisfy our hearts. You're the true one that can redeem us, Lord, from our darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would even mobilize campus ministries around our area that they might reach people with the gospel that we, we wouldn't, wouldn't, and reaching college students in particular. And we, and we ask you to bless RUF at UNCC with Heath McClellan. We pray you would bless uh, Michael Whittem at Johnson & Wales RUF. And, of course, we pray for campus outreach and uh, the ministry that's going on at Wingate University particularly with the students returning from, um, from New Year's conference, we ask you in every case that you would both reach the lost and deepen the found, that you would lead us, Lord, to more worship of you because of the way you change our lives. And finally, Lord, we bring up to you today the reading and the preaching of the word that you would speak today for the speaker's week we pray that in all this, the, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, that by your grace you would awaken our hearts to the glories of who you are. And we pray that through Christ alone. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word in 1 Samuel 1. 1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 1. This is the story of Hannah mother of Samuel. There was a certain man of uh, Ramathiam Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. 
And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, and often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more than, to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and, and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm, not, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I, I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They, that is the family, rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to the house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Reuters News reports that in November of 1994... Jeffrey Maine of West Haven, Connecticut, pulled his car up to an intersection. And as he did so, he thought he noticed a problem with his brakes. So he shifted his car into park in the intersection, got out of his car, and tried to check his wheels. With no one at the driver's seat, the car somehow slipped into reverse and took off backwards at a high speed. The steering wheel parent naturally spun, and so the car began to go round and round in circles in the middle of a busy intersection during rush hour traffic. Police and fire departments showed up uh, and were called to figure out a way to, keep the, uh, to stop the car from circling at such high speed. Two hours passed with no end in sight with this out-of-control car. Finally, the authorities devised a plan that they would block parts of the intersection off with tractor-trailer trucks and that they would put, bring in three front-end loaders uh, to 
corral the car that was out of control. And sure enough, they did that with the front end loaders. They pinned it. Firefighters rushed to the driver's side window, knocked out the window, reached in and turned off the ignition to the car. The car with no one at the wheel was brought under control, but not until some damage was done in the process. Today we start into a new series, a series in 1 Samuel that is a book all about leadership of God's people and the longing for leadership that God had in that the people had within themselves. It's about individuals and people who were struggling to find that one leader who would get things right. They were, if you will, as a people for years, decades, even hundreds of years, going in circles, round and round, in reverse. What you need to know about 1 Samuel is it's a book that really is a continuation of the book of Judges. In fact, Samuel himself, as we'll find out later, is the last of the great judges that shows up in that book a few books back in the, in the English scriptures. And the, the rhythm of the judges was simple, that God's people would often fall into this circular process, going backwards, if you will, of, um, of falling into idolatry, of God disciplining them uh, with the nations coming against them and resisting them, and... Uh, God, the people calling out for a Savior and God sending that Savior figure, that judge to them. And yet, in the midst of having all these judges, it would, it would say throughout the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. That is, there was no human king. Now, of course, all along, <laughs> from, from the time of Moses up to this point, they actually had a king, and their king was God himself. That's what God wanted to be, was their only king. And yet, uh, in the absence of a human king, the people found themselves longing for more. For God's people, life felt a little bit like a car going out of control backwards in circles. So what did God do? God sent leaders, judges, from Joshua to Samuel to lead the people in the midst of the cycle of sin and idolatry and the need for salvation. And in the midst of this, these, these major shifts of the people, there were always shattered dreams. There were always disappointments. There were always heartaches that went on for the people where they felt their pain in unique ways. And that's exactly what we find in our text today with the story of Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. An experience of shattered dreams that she comes to grip with at a very real point in her life. In fact, uh, we're going to deal today with that greater question. In the longing for a king, we're going to ask the question, how does that manifest itself in the way we walk with God? Even for people who are struggling with disappointment. And likewise, how does God the king attend to our struggles and our longings in the midst of our disappointments? So we're in 1 Samuel 1. It is the story of Samuel, the beginning part of uh, this important uh, book in Scripture. And uh, we hear about Hannah in the process. And the funny thing about this whole chapter is that you would think that a book about a nation coming together, longing for a king, for all the things that have to do with a people coming together, would start maybe on the plains of Germania with uh, Maximus 
taking on the Germanian forces, the barbarians, and destroying them. You'd think that the, the book would start with um, the rebellion of Star Wars pushing back against the empire with X-wing fighters and courageous acts uh, of the people like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. But nah, this book starts in a very strange place. It starts in a place with a woman who's in pain. A woman who is childless and who's in a family uh, where it seems like she will never gain her deepest desire. In fact, uh, our, our book starts really in verses 1 through 3 where it gives us the context of where Hannah comes from and therefore where Samuel comes from. In verse 1 it says, There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, that's right, I said that, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of, and you can see, his, uh, his uh, legacy or his, uh, his ancestry there. First Samuel begins telling us about the origins of Samuel's family, including Elkanah and his two wives, particularly Hannah. And we learn some basic facts in these first verses of this text. First, this is a historical people. This isn't just a family, a myth, which many want to pretend that the Bible actually is. This has all the signs of history in it. When it says there was this guy who lived in this place and he had this line of the family, it's saying that guy right there has a story to tell. We have something to learn from this guy. So this is history itself we're dealing with. Second, these verses tell us that Elkanah had a family of sister wives. You know, like that TV show? He was a big, uh, Elkanah apparently was a bigamist with two wives. He had Penina and he had Hannah as wives. And Hannah apparently is the first wife in that, in the first list, her name is mentioned first. And you should know that it, it with, with women who couldn't have children, barren women, in ancient Near Eastern times, it was not uncommon for men to marry another woman so they could have kids and have heirs because that was such an important part of that culture. Now, that brings up some questions for us, doesn't it? Here we've got Elkanah, who's got two wives, and that brings up a question and really a difficult reality for us even in this text. And the question is this, does the Bible endorse bigamy or polygamy, for that matter, marrying multiple people? Well, this question matters to us today because we do live in a time where the definition of marriage is being massaged and changed in all kinds of ways. So the short answer for Scripture is that no, God does not endorse uh, polygamy or bigamy for that matter. God the King created the first married couple, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1 and 2 as the standard for marriage between uh, uh, two people, a man and a woman. The reality that we have to face in this text is that the Bible is so truthful about the people of that time, that it, about its heroes and its sheroes, that it tells us that even families that tried to follow God were messy. The idyllic picture that we often have of sinless families uh, is really a fool's errand because sin shows up where sinners live. So cheer up, married couples, families, even singles who aspire to be married and have kids. Your sin is worse than you thought in your family. It's everywhere. 
And you know it to be true, especially after the holidays, don't you? The third fact of, the, of this uh, context in the first verses is, in Samuel is this, that Elkanah and his family clearly are a godly family. Even though they're messy, even though God doesn't endorse polygamy, they are a godly family. They packed up the family in an SUV every year, took a trip about 20 miles north to, from Ramah up to uh, Shiloh to worship the Lord. There was a tabernacle there uh, in Shiloh, the tabernacle of God with, with Eli and his sons uh, Phineas and um, Hophni. And we don't know what time of year that um, Elkanah and the family would go, but it's clear he went to worship. And throughout the text, it talks about how they worship the Lord. And they worship by giving sacrifices, sacrifices of animals, usually more often than not a peace offering, the peace offering with God, where they would give animals to the priests. The priests would kill the animals with the blood, and they would uh, cook the animals, and uh, they would often give pieces of the animals back to the family, who would then go home and eat it, celebrating that they were at peace with God together as followers of the Lord. So what does that mean? What this means is that Elkanah as a sinner also went in faith to worship God by leading his family spiritually. What that means is there is hope here for us as men. Sometimes when we see ourselves spiritually, even in our brokenness, we want to give up. We want to we abdicate. We want to run. We want to go to the things that we're really good at because we don't feel competent even spiritually leading at times. But here's the good news. The way to lead spiritually is you don't lead with your competency. You lead with your weakness. You lead with your brokenness. You lead with God just like Elkanah offering sacrifices for your sin, confessing and looking to Christ. That's where real leadership in family, in church, in community, all, all the way around begins. It never begins by having your act together because you can never get your act together enough. You lead with your need. That's what Elkanah is doing in our text today. In short, what's going on in this family is these are the longings of a struggling family. They are longing to know God together, but there are more longings that are going on in our text here. There are longings of a childless woman. Look at verse 4 with me here. Verse 4 says this. It says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. You hear that? Our text tells us a very hard thing. It tells us that Hannah's womb had been closed by the Lord. It says it twice in our text. And this couple, and this woman in particular, who longed to be a mother, was dealing with one of the hardest things a woman can deal with in her life, the struggle of not having children. Ask any woman who has struggled with this issue of barrenness, and there, and there are some in this room who have struggled with it. They can tell you that it is very difficult. And the longing to have children is always there. It's like an ache that seems to never be satisfied. Attached to that ache is the feeling of helplessness. 
that there's nothing you can do. In Hannah's culture's case, as in some cases of our own culture, not having children came not only with a sense of helplessness, but with a twinge of shame. Imagine Elkanah and family sitting around the dinner table in Shiloh after they had done their sacrifice and worshipped, and they were eating portions together as a family around the table, kind of like Christmas dinner you've encountered with your family in the last few weeks. And there is Hannah sitting by herself watching Penina with all her kids running around the room playing. Imagine the ache she must have felt experiencing that with this longing in her heart, I want children too. Now that ache was enough to lead a woman to cry, as we see in our text. But it gets really hard for Hannah. It gets really, really hard. First, she has an adversary in the family, the second wife, Penina, which the very dynamic between these two here, as well as you go back to Hagar and Sarah with Abraham, proves that having multiple wives just really doesn't work if you just want to get practical. But the dynamic between them is such that Penina uh, becomes an adversary, a rival, provoking Hannah in her childlessness. Not only that, we're going to see in a second, Elkanah throws his two cents in, and he makes it difficult for his wife. And then finally, her pastor at Shiloh, Eli, throws his two cents in and with words and misunderstanding judges her. What happens with Penina first? Well, it, what happens with Penina first is Penina is provoking her to a grievous state so that she's crying and weeping uncontrollably. And probably Penina said things to Hannah like this, Well, Hannah, another year has passed. I've had my fifth child this year. Hasn't God good, been good to me? Oh, you still don't have a child. God must be really for me. He's blessing a lot. I don't know what's going on with you. Have you, have you dealt with your unconfessed sin? Of course, Penina was clearly persecuting Hannah with her words. But it doesn't get any better for Hannah this time. She's so distraught about her barrenness that she stops eating. And Elkanah, in our text, notice this, is, notices this, and I want the men in this room to read this text, all right? Verse 8, Elkanah's response to her is, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not uh, more to you than ten sons? Uh, we men can be about as sensitive as a stone sometimes. And that's exactly what's going on with Elkanah here. He's saying, what's the problem, Hannah? You got me. That's such a man thing to say. Of course, I've never said that to my wife. Elkanah's being really insensitive. In fact, I would submit to you that what he's asking in these questions is something a little bit like Job's friends. You remember Job's friends who came to him when he went through incredible suffering, uh, unheard of suffering that we're even not familiar with, and how they came to him asking a bunch of questions and really providing uh, foolish counsel and foolish comfort for him? Well, that's exactly what Elkanah's doing here, providing the foolish counsel and foolish comfort of someone who really doesn't understand what's going on emotionally with his own wife. 
What can we learn from these two examples of Penina as well as from Elkanah? Well, when life is going well for us, when we encounter someone suffering with barrenness or another helpless experience, watch what you say. Don't quote things like um, uh, Romans 8.28. Pious advice or even hostile statements like you must have sinned are not love. They're actually discouraging and hurt people. In other words, when people are suffering in helplessness, do not meet their vulnerability with power. Do not meet their vulnerability and helplessness with the right answer. Meet it with something different, with tears. We weep with those who weep. And our Lord Jesus Christ is that kind of God who weeps with those who weep who laments when those are hurting, who cares with those who deeply need that care. In fact, that's the amazing thing that's going on here is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that very one we long for, he actually leans in to our vulnerabilities and helplessness with his kindness and his compassion. He is our model. That is how he treats us. Therefore, we should treat one another that way. Next time your longings are there with some sense of helplessness, as Jesus meets you with grace, take that grace and give it to, to someone else. Hannah, meanwhile, in our text, was really not doing very well. She's got a rival sister wife. Her husband is insensitive. She's feeling the, her barrenness like crazy. She's going to go to church in just a second in a few verses and seek to pray to God, and her pastor's going to judge her for being drunk. But what does she do in the midst of all this? She expresses her longings to the real king in prayer. Look at verse 10 in our text. It says this, She was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah was really praying in desperation. You know that, right? She, was nowhere, uh, she has nowhere to go but God himself. Because no man could really come through for her, and even those closest to her were making it harder. She is longing for a sovereign king to overcome the deepest longing that is so unsatisfied in her heart. She's longing for a sovereign king to appeal to her helplessness. And so she talks to God about her helplessness. She prays, which is a very posture of need. When you pray and you go to God, it's basically saying, I need you. I'm not enough. And nobody else here is either. You are the ultimate Lord. In fact, she uses the language of the Lord of hosts. This, along with verse 3 in her text, that language of he praying to the Lord of hosts, that's the language of power. 
The Lord of hosts is used to describe how God is a, 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 is a title, rather, that describes how God has sovereign power over the multitudes of angels, of armies of men, of even the animals of the world. God is the all-powerful king who rules sovereignly in every circumstance. In other words, she is appealing to God in his great power, in his bigness, to attend to her need. When you feel helpless, this is an important question you need to answer for yourself spiritually. If you're going to grow, where do you go first? When you feel that sense of incompetence, that sense of helplessness, where do you go first usually? That'll tell you a little bit about what you believe in, what you really believe in. Prayer is the pursuit of God in the midst of our helplessness. It is where we as Christians are meant to go first. We feel the twinge of our limits and our inabilities, of our lack and our weakness. So she goes to God and she prays. And what does she pray in our text today? Well, uh, there are four P's of Hannah's prayer I want to highlight that is just marvelous uh, here in verse 11. The first P is she petitions the Lord. She asks of God. Let me be clear. She doesn't demand. She doesn't sit with silent expectations thinking, now he's just going to guess what I'm going to think. No, she humbly bows before the King of Kings and asks. Sometimes for prideful people like me, asking is really hard. But that's exactly the exercise God calls us to do in prayer. Ask. And in her case, she asks for what seems to be the impossible, a son. Second, she prays with a promise. She says she will devote her son to the Lord, to service to the Lord, by not putting a razor to his head. Now, this is a, an allusion to something called a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, number 16, where it talks at length about how some are set aside for service to the Lord, like Samson, back in Judges, by not cutting their hair, by not eating of grapes, among other things. The Nazarite vow would consecrate a child or a person to a particular task. Now, let me be clear. You don't necessarily have to pray this, nor do you want to pray this for your child. This is Hannah's choice for her particular situation. But it is instructive. It is instructive that when real prayer takes place, there is a resolution, a resolve that goes on in our hearts that we make promises to God that only by grace can we keep and only by encountering Christ in a real way will they make us new. Third P, of her prayer is she prostrates herself before God. She keeps saying that she is the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant. Even as a mother who's wanting this child, who's been longing for a child, she's like, I'm here to serve you even with my child. And why does she say that? Well, she knows that it is a God who gives gifts and that our children are ultimately God's and not ours. Humility means that when we prostrate ourselves relative to our kids, we have to let go of our control as parents, as spouses, as family members, even as workers, realizing that whatever gift God gives us ultimately is sovereignly His. In short, 
Hannah is agreeing before God not to be a helicopter parent, protecting her child from all harm and helping her kid get and achieve the next great thing in life. Let's be clear. We don't give our kids the Nazarite vow in our time, but anyone who is a parent and desires to be a parent would be tutored by this, that we hold on loosely to our children. We care for them. We engage them. We don't, we don't let them do just anything, but we hold on loosely to our children. Hannah's open-handedness is, a, is really instructive to us in an age where we want to control our kids and control their environment and control their futures, when in point of fact, we actually have absolutely no control. Fourth and final P of Hannah's prayer is, is, is one where, where we often overlook in our prayer. And the fourth and final P is her passion and her pain, how she brings those to the Lord. Notice that Hannah goes to the Lord with such emotion. Tears, anxiety, emotional honesty, weeping uncontrollably. And behind the passion and the pain was a deep longing for something. When you feel intense emotion, go to God with it in prayer. You know why? Because that intense emotion is pointing to something in your soul that you want and more often than not, aren't getting. If, you, if you're struggling with anger, go talk with anger to God. I'm not saying be angry, God, but I am saying go to God with that anger. If you're sad, go to the Lord with your tears like Hannah does. Be emotionally honest with God. God can handle it. He's big enough. He created your emotions. Emotions were his idea. Jesus himself prayed and acted with emotion. Behind our emotions are our deepest longings. Let me unpack that for a second. When I get angry, usually I feel some sense of injustice. Now, with my self-righteous bent, I can go all kinds of bad places with that sense of injustice. But when I go to prayer and process my anger with the Lord, just like you see David do throughout all the Psalms, you'll find more often than not that as you process your emotion with God as your ultimate counselor in the Spirit, that very often with the Word, He will help you see what is sinful sense of injustice or what is spot on and is a real injustice that you are encountering. When you go to Him with that, it will change your life and how you handle your emotion. Hannah let it all out with the Lord. Even though she was let down by those immediately around her, especially Penina, but even Elkanah and Eli, she sought the Lord with her longing. And she sought the King of Kings as the one who could attend to even her emotion. So she goes in to worship. Eli's there. He sees her praying. He says, woman, why don't you stop drinking? And, and she responds, I'm not drinking. Uh, it's not like I've been, in the Hebrews like this, it's not like I've been pouring in drink. I'm pouring out my soul. I think this is instructive for those of us who like to self-medicate, that very often we want to pour more in TV, food, drink, uh, 
uh, work, whatever you mean. But when in point of fact, what we really need to do is do exactly what she's doing, pour it out. Let the Lord know. I need you in my longing for a child in this case. So what happens? Eli, to his credit, says, oops, got that one wrong. I judged you, and I shouldn't have judged you. Forgive me. Go in peace, and may the Lord grant you what you desire. In other words, he blesses her. He blesses her in a way that affirms her longing, because he knows that women are made to have children, and it's okay to want that. And he blesses her in a way that gives her hope that he can agree with her prayer where two or more gather, gather and agree. That's what he's doing here. He's praying, really, for the peace that transcends all understanding in her life, in this troubled woman's heart. And so she walks away with peace in our text. She walks away with peace. She's hurting, but she has peace in the pain. This blessing of this woman, this blessing that Eli gave to her, was a way for an authority in her life to love. And this is instructive for us who serve in any spiritual authority in our families, whether we serve as authorities in our workplaces as managers, whether we serve as authorities in church or any other place in our civil society, our job is to bless, and to bless with grace. Grace is the exact, is, you know what the, the Hebrew word for grace is? Hannah. She was a living example of experiencing grace in someone's life. So what happens? She goes home, uh, and sure enough, she gets pregnant with Elkanah after who knows how many years of waiting. She gives birth to Samuel, whom, uh, whose name actually means that uh, she, he was asked for from the Lord. And who would Samuel become? Samuel would become the last judge. He would become a Levitical-type priest for the whole nation of Israel. He would become the primary prophet speaking, sort of like uh, Moses did uh, hundreds of years earlier. He would become the kingmaker of God, anointing Saul and then ultimately David, who would be the king after God's own heart. You see, Samuel would play a crucial role as the leader who comes before the leader. That's the way the scriptures work. There's always a leader pointing to the real leader. Ray read it this morning when he read in John 1 when he talked about John the Baptist being the leader who would talk about the ultimate leader to come in Jesus Christ. That's the role that Samuel would play. The one who is, if you will, the drum roll to the great moment in history when the real king would come. And the wonderful thing about this, and this is the gospel, is that in the midst of this, He's born to a barren, what once was a barren woman. Hello, have we not heard this in Scripture before? Isaac was born to Sarah, Jacob to Rebekah, Samson to Manoah's wife. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist himself to an old Elizabeth and Zechariah. 
Samuel comes to prepare a way for a king from a barren woman to attend to the longings of a people. What about you? What is your longing today? What would you weep over if someone said the right thing and it poked your heart? What do you bring to the table with longing today? Go to the Lord with that longing, and here's what you'll find. He wants to be the first one to satisfy you as the king of kings. You know why I can give you hope about that? Because there was one who was born in extraordinary circumstances, conceived of a virgin, born of Mary. His name is Jesus. He's the one who came into our world as the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm life. All that you long for is embodied in me. I'm going to give you ultimate life that no other person or experience can give you. Come to the Christ today. Don't spend your life longing and seeking after the things of this world without going to him first. Go to the Christ. Come to him because he wants to lead you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for ourselves as we face the reality of our longings. That like Hannah, we all have deep longings and deep disappointments that we carry around. But you are the one that we can go to When all else fails in our desperation, you're the one we can find life. And I pray for those who are here today who have genuine aches where their soul is really tender, that like Hannah, you would attend to them in the power of the Spirit and you'd remind them and show them in Scripture, even through your Spirit in prayer, that you hear their longings and you want to attend to them by being their first solution by being the one who gives them satisfaction in yourself. And pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that that they might understand that longings will never be satisfied in the things of this world. We were made to be satisfied by you as our creator, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Hear our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.